Welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with those movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the actors, the cinematographers, production designers, costume designers, VFX wizards, uh, sound mixers, sound editors, composers, book authors, um, you name it, we talk to them. Um, I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. And I'm so happy to be here this week. Last week, I uh, had to abruptly cancel the show due to the outrageous storm that hit Southern California and flooded my house with five inches of water in one area and three inches of water in every room but for the kitchen. So um, I was actually bailing water myself last Monday out of my house. My recommendation to people, don't buy a condo. Check out the HOA because if you get a crappy HOA like I have, you're doomed. Doomed. And for the record, this was flood 39 in my house in 27 years. So you know what I was doing all week long. So, unfortunately, Sharon Lee was going to join us last week. I'm trying to reschedule Sharon for her wonderful film, Float, that is out now. Um, If you love Hallmark movies, you will love Float. So, hopefully, I can get Sharon back in here. Maybe on the 20, maybe two weeks from now, on the 26th. Next week, we won't be here because it's President's Day and Pam gets a a three-day weekend. So, we'll see what's going on there. But, today's show, oh, and by the way, I hope you all realize that today is National Post-Super Bowl Football, Post-Super Bowl Football Sunday Hangover Day. I did not know that there was now an official National Hangover Day, Post-Super Bowl Hangover Day, but... That is today, which could explain why traffic was a little lighter today. Uh, But joining us today live, very excited. I cannot wait to talk to this writer-director about his feature directorial debut. Michael Luck Litwack is joining us to talk about his film, Molly and Max in the Future. It is in theaters right now. It opened on Friday. It is, it is incredible. It is so creative, so imaginative. It is a blend of visual effects, miniatures, uh, miniature models, just incredible. It's set in the future, in space, traveling amongst galaxies and planets, uh, very akin in many respects to a When Harry Met Sally. It takes place over the course of 12 years. 12 years, multiple orbits, multiple planets. Um, I'm very excited to talk with Michael later in the show about this film. I'm just in love with it. It makes me smile. Uh, And so looking forward to that. But first, you're going to hear my pre-recorded exclusive interview with another writer-director making her feature film directorial debut, Ava Hossman, and her utterly charming film, Willie and Me, a feel-good movie with heartwarming moments. It has great characters, really solid performances, wonderful production elements. Um, nicely polished. It also marks the final film appearance of Peter Bogdanovich, who is a scream. He is a scream. But Eva stars in the film in addition to writing and directing it. And a lot of this is semi-autobiographical in some respects. The film is Willie and Me. And when you think of Willie, who do you think of? Willie Nelson. And that's exactly what you get with Willie and me. Ava plays 
our title character, Greta, who is obsessed with Willie Nelson. She lives in Germany, and she learns that Willie Nelson is going on his final tour, and she has to get to Las Vegas to see Willie Nelson in his final tour. She sells her husband's car, priceless car, gets money for it, flies, lands in Reno, has to get to Vegas, uh, wherever Willie is performing. And it is, and she's new, first time in America. So she's very trusting. She's very wide-eyed uh, and has all kinds of escapades in trying to get to see Willie Nelson's final concert. In real life, Ava is a huge Willie Nelson fan. And it shows in the script, and you'll hear Ava talk about this, because the film, it's filled with Willie Nelson songs. And they were cherry-picked. She wrote, she knew which songs she loved, that she wanted to include. And she built the story around those songs. So each one is just pitch perfect in its placement within the film. We've got a great performance from Blaine Gray, who plays an Elvis impersonator, Nick, who just is so sweet and tries to help Greta in her quest. Willie Nelson, of course, is in the film as himself and another rather interesting character. And once he shows up on screen, there is so much warmth and sweetness that comes out. The chemistry that Ava has with Willie, there is genuine, genuine affection there. Um, We've got flashbacks. um, We've got the character of Greta. Ava has so well developed. She is indefatigable. She's upbeat. She's naive. She's got a sweet silliness to her, but you love her and you really want to root for her. I mentioned the production values, the polish. Cinematographers Marco Capetta, Alexa uh, Ert. It, the film is bright, saturated, colorful, playful, just on every level, pure enjoyment. So instead of listening to me blather on, Take a listen to my exclusive interview with Ava Hossman talking about Willie and Me. I have to tell you right off the bat how much I enjoyed this film, Willie and Me. This so upbeat, the character of Greta is indefatigable. There's a naivete that comes with the cultural difference from Germany and the United States. There's a sweet silliness to it. It just, and then once Willie Nelson shows up, there's this great warmth. This is really, it's a feel-good movie. You just want to sit back on the couch, under a blanket, watch this, and smile. Oh, thank you so much, Debbie. Oh, that is, thank you so much. That means really... Uh, the world to me, um, what you just said. I hope a lot of, of people are feeling the same way you just explained. <laughs> that would have been that would have been everything worth it. Whatever struggle came along that road. Eva, it's this does not look like your first feature film as a director and a writer. You have wonderful production elements here. It's a fun and entertaining story filled with heart. Your characters are great. I, I Peter Bogdanovich is hilarious. He doesn't crack a smile, but he is hilarious as the hotel guy, Charlie, and he keeps turning around taking shots of whiskey. Just... Just and then you bring in Blaine Gray as Nick, the Elvis impersonator. Your chemistry with Blaine on screen 
is just electric from the minute the two of you, Greta and Nick, meet. It is so beautiful watching the two of you interact and to follow the journey of Greta trying to, to get to the Willie Nelson concert and then Nick essentially trying to rescue Greta when he finds out she's stranded in the desert somewhere. It has a fairy tale quality to it, and you really want to root for them. Oh, thank you, thank you, Debbie. Um, I I already worked with Blaine Gray on a short film, um, Mad Lane. Mm-hmm. So I already knew him, and um, I kind of wrote the script with him in mind as um, Nick the Elvis impersonator. He's he's an amazing actor, and it's so nice to. It was so nice working with them. I have to say, all the actors, I was really thankful. Um, and uh, really, there was such a gift to work with all the actors and who were greatly prepared and had such a good spirit. Um, yeah, that really was touching and made me like even more direct in future. Mm-hmm. Maybe more behind the camera than in front of the camera, because it's kind of challenge, challenging <laughs> to do both at the same time. I bet you had fun doing that. So I've got to ask you, as director and writer and lead actor, did lead actor Eva take direction well from director Eva? Yes, they did. Really, um, that was perfect. We had a lot of rehearsals before, but I mean, I also was lo- lucky that they were like so much in their parts um, that it was not that hard. I mean, with the kids for sure in the car scenes, like it's often that it was kind of free falling, like a lot of rehearsals, and I I trusted the team and the camera, the DP, and then I had to let go when we were finally shooting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's, it's tough, and I had kind of a bad consciousness in between that I couldn't give the actors 100% attention um, where they were, like, we were playing together. Yeah, because you're, yeah. you're trying to juggle uh, wear many hats, so that is hard. I'm curious, where did the idea for this film and this story start. Were you a Willie Nelson fan? Because obviously this whole story hinges on Willie being involved in the film. Yes. Um, I was as a a child, so my mother had a tape, Stardust, in her car, and that was the first time I listened to Willie. And then I stopped listening to him. So it has kind of biographical elements. Mm-hmm. Um, so the childhood elements are surely in there in the beginning. And, and then it goes more abstract and over the top for sure <laughs> as a comedy. How did you yeah. get Willie Nelson involved in this film? It, actually, Peter Bogdanovich introduced um, the script the first draft he was sending to his management and to Willie. So um, he made the connection. And I met him the first time at the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles together with Peter. We were at the concert. And then um, after the concert, we met. So thanks to Peter Bogdanovich. How did you connect with Peter? Because I knew Peter off and on through... TCM Film Festival. I had spoken with him many times over the years, and uh, also in conjunction, we did a long sit-down talking about finishing Orson Welles' film, Other Side of the Wind. So, oh, um, yes, I know. So, Absolutely. Yes, Peter and I were talking about that um, very often, and um, yeah, he's, he spoke a lot about um, this project. Um, so Peter saw a short film I did that uh, was in New York on a festival called Madeleine, 
and he really liked the short film and he was just asking if I'm working on something um, else right now. And um, at that time, um, I had finished a draft, like a 20-page draft for Willie and me, and he was reading that and he liked the story and said, write a script. So, yeah, it didn't took me long. I <laughs> Like, yeah, two months, six weeks, I had the first draft ready and was sending it to Peter. Um, at that time, I still lived in Germany. Um, I was like back and forth between Los Angeles and Germany. So in, in Los Angeles at that time, I studied directing at UCLA extension courses and um, worked in Germany. So anyhow, I was then in, in Los Angeles and started working with him on the script. So he became basically my mentor and yeah, started saying, Eva, if you want to become a director, you have to start with Greek history. And then we went from really silent films, black and white films, um, like the whole film history uh, to modern films. He taught me so much and worked with me on the script. And so, yeah, that way uh, we decided that he's, if, yeah, that he, he's going to play Charlie. Um, the hotel manager was constantly drinking. He's hilarious in the part. What do you think is the most important thing that you learned in your conversations with Peter about filmmaking and about directing that helped you in making Willie and Me? Not to give up. Honestly, that's um, the biggest support I could get from him. I mean, first of all, the compliments like that Peter was interested in that project and, and teaching me so lot, uh, so much. Um, and then not to give up because it took a while to finish the film and, and that's why I, at the end even produced it because it's really not easy for a first time director to get financing for a film. Yeah. So I had a lot of crash and he always said, move forward, Eva, and don't give up. And so, yeah, that, that was a big emotional support. Putting this film together, as I said, you've got some really good production values in here, starting with your cinematography. I love your cinematography. You keep things working with, you've got two cinematographers on the film. And I love how you keep your shots. They're medium shots. Out in the desert, you do go into some wide shots. But as a rule, you keep the film light, bright, colorful, and saturated. Be it inside in the first casino where Nick is performing, all the way through to out in the desert to the night scenes. You have really beautiful elements with your lighting, color, and your framing. Talk to me about working with your cinematographers to develop your visual tonal bandwidth of the film, the visual grammar. Um, actually, we worked out kind of um, a concept, so all the German parts, um, there was the idea to make it more bluish, cold, claustrophobic, and then show the colorful whiteness um, of, of uh, America and um, give, give it a contrast. And also these desert scenes are like a symbolism of, on one hand, that she's getting completely lost and that she's losing everything, and at the same time, it's the quietness where she can find herself. Um, I was always um, inspired also by John Ford films, mm -hmm. the Western films, and also as a coming from Germany, I think it's a, like automatically there's a different eye on things, seeing like the desert for the first time because you don't see it in Germany. So it gives a, a, a different expression, more intense. Um, and I'm also, yeah, I love photography. I'm very much into pho photography as well. And um, 
I actually had a vernissage before I came to Los Angeles. Um, yeah, photography, I, I love to do. And I mean, great talents. I, I was lucky to be able to work with this great talent, with Marco Capetta and Alexa Earth. They immediately knew like what I was looking for and yeah, <laughs> the concept, the color concepts and, and the framing. And it's really inspired David Lynch. Um, mm -hmm. I love um, And so, yeah. Yeah, I can see the David Lynch. I can see the John Ford. And what I love in watching this is because both of my grandparents were from Germany. And oh, really? they had never, they never came out west. They stayed on the east coast in Philadelphia and New Jersey. But when I came out west and sent them pictures that I took, that was one of the things that my grandparents, because my grandfather was actually from Goslar up in the Harz Mountains. And my grandmother was from Bremen. So they were used oh. to seeing water and trees and forest. And for them, it was seeing the desert. It was just in pictures that I took. They were just astounded, yeah. and watching your film, that and watching Greta as she's seeing this for the first time, you really reminded me of them and their reactions. Oh wow, wow, that's that's crazy. Yeah, that's how it is. I mean, I still love to go in the desert. It's just for me, is such a beautiful place, so inspiring. Um, yeah. For, so that was very emotionally impactful for me to see wow. that contrast that you have going. Now, this whole film revolves around Willie Nelson's music. And it the songs you have picked, the, where they are placed, are perfect. How difficult was it to pick the right Willie Nelson songs for, and for the right moments? Um, <clears throat> actually, they, these songs really inspired me. That's a great point um, for each scene. So each song has really a meaning and is connected to the scenes um, as they are. So it was, um, his, his songs inspired me greatly, writing the script and, um, and, and yeah. Um, I lost it. <laughs> yes, what was your question again? Was it, was it difficult to pick out the specific Willie Nelson songs and no, insert was, them? That was, that was not difficult at all. It was, but then it was important to me to get exactly these songs, like, um, at the end, always on my mind, mm -hmm. or... The red-headed stranger, like um, the mother with the three kids in the desert, she has red hair, mm -hmm. and uh, I was casted for that. So it it has an intense connection, and I mean, I knew, I know so many Willie Nelson songs. So um, when there was a moment to describe a situation, the songs were just coming to me. I didn't have to search for so long. It was just falling into place. Since I, I, I'm so familiar with his music. But the songs are perfect in every spot in this film where we hear a Willie song come up. It is perfect for that moment. I think that is, this is probably one of the strongest needle drop individual song film connections that I have ever seen for songs that were not written for the film. Wow, thank you so much, Debbie, because it was like I really was fighting for getting exactly these songs because of what you just said, I say it's exactly... Um, was so important to me to get exactly these songs because they are connected to the scenes and um, makes me really happy that you see that. Anybody who doesn't see and feel that 
then they're not watching the film properly because uh, the music is just perfect for every single moment that it appears. Just that is spot on, just spot on, Eva. That really impresses me uh, with what you've done. Now, I know that you probably have another interview after me and you have to run, but very quickly, I've got to ask you, what did you learn as a filmmaker and a storyteller in making Willie and Me that you can now take forward into your next films? A lot. I made a lot of mistakes, like beginner mistakes, and um, I would organize things differently. Um, I will for my next project. Um, not the writing, not the storytelling. Um, I will try to to keep whatever is in my heart and um, try to realize it because on the way. There are a lot of people who, who say, no, you have to the scene, it needs to end like this, and these moments need to be different, and you can't do a spelling scene for so long, this is way too long, the spelling back and forth, and it's just like what I learned is like staying true to myself and being aware of the difficulties that uh, can come across in directing and producing and um, not to give up <laughs> and the key is like the crew and the actors always working with people you can rely on and, and trust so I, I definitely will take uh, my family in the next uh, film well family in the next project that's, that's really key to have people you trust and that you work well with, so... Yeah, Eva, yeah, absolutely. So important. Eva, you have done a wonderful job with Willie and me. I can't wait to see the next film that you direct that you bring us. I'm excited for oh. that. Thank you, Debbie. That's so good to hear. Yes, I'm in the middle of preparation. As you, I don't know if you can see me. No, I'm just on my phone, yeah. Oh, you're just on the phone. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to show you something through the camera, but you don't see me. Okay. <laughs> yes, I mean, I'm, I'm writing and preparing um, my next project, which is also kind of a dark comedy, which could turn into a series. Well, yeah. I will be waiting for it, Eva. I will be waiting for it. This has been so lovely, so lovely getting to talk with you today. And hopefully we'll talk again in the future. I hope so too, Debbie. Um, you will get informed as soon as there's something new to see. I would love to keep you posted. Oh, and I would love that, Eva. You go have a wonderful rest of your day, evening, and we will talk in the future. You will, Debbie. You have a wonderful day as well. Bye-bye, Eva. Thank you so much for, for the nice interview. Oh, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Eva Hausman talking about Willie and Me. It is out now. It opened on Friday. It is a charmer. Uh, it really is sweet. It's wonderful. And I, can, I truly cannot wait to see what Eva brings us next because she has such a wonderful eye. She's excellent at character development, but she also understands the visual aspect and how to bring it to life as well. So check out Willie and Me. You will not be disappointed. And hey, if you're willing, fans of Willie Nelson music, you're definitely going to love that film. So now... We're going to switch gears here. I'm so excited for this next guest I have, Michael Luck Litvak. How are you, Michael? I'm good. How are you? I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you here because I love 
Molly and Max in the future. Oh, thank you. Oh, that really means a lot. Thank you. Michael, this film, it is so much fun. It is so creative. It is inventive. Um, We've got a definite nod to when Harry met Sally happening here. Uh, Most definitely. Most definitely. But I love this whole futuristic sci-fi. Futuristic sci-fi rom-com. And you've got Molly and you've got Max. Max, who happens to be half human, half fish. Uh, It's true. And uh, their, their worlds collide. Their orbits collide. Throughout 12 years, they bounce around on different planets, different dimensions, and, you know, Molly even goes through a cult phase, um, which is <laughs> hilarious, hilarious. But this whole thing is so much fun, but it is your visual effects, so many of, of which I know are in camera, but your color. We really feel, it's just, you look at this and you see the swirling of planets, you see asteroid belts, you see the different colors, and you're just like, oh, you know those old commercials, take me away, Calgon, for Calgon bath oil, soak in your tub? Well, this is the visual to that. Just take me away (laughs) into this world of Molly and Max. So well done, Michael. So well done. Thank you. Oh my god, that's such a such an amazing intro. Thank you. Where did the idea? Because obviously, this is a multi multi fold idea that you have here. One is doing a rom com with Shay, with you know paying homage to when Harry met Sally. The other is doing sci fi. The other is doing something artistically soft and beautiful. Um, and then you meld them all together. It's kind of like the chicken and the egg. What came first? Yeah, you know, I mean, it it is like so many things happen kind of at the same time, but it really all started with the fact that I was trying to get another film made that was a, a science fiction love story, and um, I'd spent seven or eight years trying to get that film off the ground, and then the pandemic kind of uh, killed it, and it was dead in the water, and... Uh, suddenly, you know, I had a lot of free time. And so during lockdown, I started watching movies because there was nothing else you could really do. And I rewatched When Harry Met Sally. And it's such a perfect film. I have, you know, I don't want to cast any um, shade on the original because it's incredible. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. But it was really interesting to watch it in the middle of a lockdown because in that world, you never know kind of what's going on outside of their relationship. Mm-hmm. You never know what's going on in the world around them. And you also kind of don't know what really what they do for a living. There's like a passing mention that, that Harry's like a political consultant or something. But, you know, in the midst of lockdown, so much of my life and, and my career and all of these things um, were just kind of put on pause. I couldn't um, help but think about how, you know, much of a fantasy when Harry met Sally was where you, you – didn't have any of these outside factors influencing their everyday lives. Um, and so, you know, I grew up watching, you know, big budget action adventure spectacle films like Star Wars and Indiana Jones and Jurassic Park. And, and you know, that's really kind of what got me into filmmaking in the first place. But then as I got older, I kind of fell in love with classic romantic comedies like, you know, the Before Trilogy and, and Annie Hall and Manhattan and uh, when Harry met Sally and, and, you know, whenever I try to make anything, I try to combine, you know, a bunch of different things that I love and, and come up with kind of a unique original combination of them. And so I, it really kind of came from this jumping off point of, you know, if, if I were to make a modern when Harry met Sally, like how would I do it? And how can I update that story for today? Um, and, and how can I kind of talk about the themes um, of friendship and relationships and, and you know, because I think one of the, the most important parts of When Harry Met Sally and the reason I think it's resonated for so long uh, and speaks to so many people is because it's about how the base of a, basis of any great relationship is really friendship. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I wanted to kind of keep that core but then update it for today and, and talk about kind of how overwhelming it can feel to be alive with, you know, especially in relationships with social media, with the internet, with all of these things going on outside your window that you, you can't control that do affect your life and, and how 
you know, our careers play a big part in our identities and, and how our relationships kind of help us get through a lot of those things that can feel very overwhelming. So that was really the genesis of it. Well, you definitely have all of that happening. You really tap into the cultural zeitgeist, the, oh, the whole idea of product placement, influencers. You've got that nailed to a T. Uh, Oh, thank you. Your play on words, your double entendres, the way that you work with a lot of the products, and you take stuff that we know well and you just change the word. You add a letter. You do something. And we, you know exactly what you're talking about. We know what you're saying <laughs> to us. Uh, it's wonderful. Uh, but then you take this to the next level with your production elements, Michael. Coming up with the different looks for each of these worlds, each of these planets, each of the orbits, each of the dimensions... Everything has a different color palette. Everything has a different feel and vibe, depending not only on where they are in the universe, but where they are in their own friendship, in their own course, in their own course of knowing each other. And you help us along by saying chapter one, chapter two, you know, chapter five, five months ago. Chapter five, five minutes later, um, you really play with all of this and help us along. But you keep us, we, we don't get confused because of the distinct looks that you've created for each world, each point in time. And each one is even more beautiful than the last. Talk to me, and I know that you're, one of your VFX guys, your VFX supervisor, Zach Stolzfus, is also your cinematographer. Obviously, your work with Zach, critical, critical to making this film work. 100%. Yeah, I mean, Zach is an incredible collaborator. And, you know, I had, I've been working with him for about 10 years now, and we, we have a lot in common. I also think we kind of challenge each other to, to, to be better, and, and we have um, really uh, have had a really fruitful collaboration over, over these 10 years. But, you know, for me, it, it, there's always kind of two things that are equally important in my mind and when I'm coming up with anything. And one is kind of how is the environment representing our characters and where they are at in the story and how can we use, you know, the world around them to express something that's internal uh, and then secondly, you know, the, the second most important thing is uh, how can I actually pull this off and make it with the resources that I have? And so there's always kind of a back and forth between, you know, the, the, the perfect idealized version and then what's actually possible on an indie film budget. And so a lot of it was, you know, starting from a place of uh, how do we, you know, how do we want to communicate this feeling to people? And then what are the different pathways that we could go down to make it? And um, you know, whether that is through the color, through the environment, through the lighting, through the combination of all of those together. And uh, it really was kind of this, uh, you know, again, another kind of catch-22 of where you, you kind of take a couple steps down a road and then you realize that maybe that isn't the, the, doesn't check all of those boxes. And then you maybe take a step to the left or the right and you, you have to kind of find something. But basically, you know, as I was writing the film, I was doing lots of research about kind of what was possible, what, what me and Zach could do uh, on our own, because about 90% of the visual effects in the movie, and there's over 900 visual effects <laughs> shot, basically every single shot in the film is a visual <laughs> effects shot, um, was done by Zach and I completely from, from start to finish. We had a couple of small things that we farmed out, uh, like the stop motion animation, because that is its own kind of skill that takes years and years to master. Yeah. But, um, you know, we neither of us are professional VFX artists, but we spend a lot of time going on YouTube and doing research and, and trying to figure out how we can kind of pull things off on our own. So as I was writing, I was also talking with Zach and coming up with a plan about how we would pull off certain things. And then we spent about 18 months um, building all of the backgrounds in the film. And, you know, not every day. It was, you know, two or three days a week Mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, I'd, I'd spend one day doing research. Then we would 
buy the materials. We'd spend another day kind of shooting the models. Then we'd spend another day compositing them. And in that process, we would kind of learn something about how to, how to make it look better, how to make it be more efficient and, um, kind of this very iterative, uh, responding to feedback in real time. And, and because we had kind of the time to, to do that, which is really nice and not really common on, on so many other projects where you're under the gun and, and you're constantly, you know, there's time pressure and money pressure, but we really kind of spread out the pre-production process over those 18 months, built a lot of the, the models ourselves. We started, you know, in my living room and then eventually moved to a friend's office space. <laughs> um, but we, uh, you know, we, we just tried to build out the world as much as possible so that even if we ended up having to shoot parts of the movie on green screen, we could have a, an image to show the actors and say, this is where you're standing. This is what it's going to look like when you're done. And, you know, we were, we shot a combination of a week on an LED stage, um, which are, you know, just basically giant TV screens. Mm-hmm. And we shot three weeks on a traditional stage where it was a kind of a combination of rear screen projection and then uh, traditional green screen. And, um, you know, it, it was kind of a, a, a medley of everything, but in general, we just always tried to keep everything practical. We, we almost used no um, computer-generated 3D visual effects. It was all kind of handmade, hand-built models, and, you know, I think that it's something that, you know, I sometimes think about my work like a live-action cartoon, and there's so many kind of silly things that happen in the movie, and I think the kind of aesthetic very much helps that because uh, you know you aren't looking at it at, like it's a Marvel movie or a DC movie, and you're you're looking at it like you know this is a story. This is a story about people. This is about the characters. It's not about whether or not the button in the background is perfectly you know centered. Um, so, but I you know I obviously do put a lot of time and energy into that kind of stuff. I, I we kind of call it like elevated lo-fi, where everything feels handcrafted, everything feels handmade. Um, and, you know, we put a lot of energy and effort into it. But at the end of the day, it is kind of intentionally artificial looking, similar to like a Wes Anderson movie or, or a Michelle Gondry movie. And so, you know, those those people have there's a long history of just like beautiful in-camera visual effects mm-hmm. and, and practical effects first forward approaches. And we kind of took that as inspiration and as a jumping off point to, you know, to keep as much of the the visual effects you know, tact, um, tactile and, and um, not kind of get lost in, in a CSDG. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, when people see the movie, they have to sit through the credits to the very end because you have some really cool images and things that play during your end credits, uh, not the least of which is because you have a beautiful, romanticized, almost a Boz Lerman, Moulin Rouge kind of moment um, where in Moulin Rouge you have Christian and Satine and they're spinning around, the world is spinning around them uh, when they're first falling in love. And you have, and you show us how you have executed that. You don't have cameras going to go 360 like Boz Lerman Correct. did. You have your main, you have Molly and Max sitting on a box and you've got crew members who are rotating the box. So the camera stays <laughs> in one position and they are physically moving this and you get the same beautiful effect that Boz Lerman got in Moulin Rouge. So, uh, you know, there. that's one of the things I love about doing things 2D, doing things tactile, staying away from CGI, what you can do, the creativity level that comes out um, and that you display in this film is that's what movie magic is. That's, oh, thank you. That's the George, that's the George Melies magic. Um, Definitely. Yeah. And, no, that was, I mean, that was one of the hardest shots to pull off and it was, you know, it was our last day of shooting. And so everybody was also really exhausted and we have to, we had to do it about 15 times and <laughs> they had to spin around twice to get it. And so, you know, I was surprised that nobody, nobody vomited. Uh, I was just was thinking so that. Yeah. And I'm so proud of it. Oh my God, you should be. Now talk to me about your various color designs. Your color designs are beautiful. Um, I know when we see 
you know, the big city. They're both in the big city with skyscrapers, and you've got yellows, bright, different shades of yellows, some oranges. Everything is bright like the sun, um, but it's beautiful. Actually, it reminded me of some of the uh, beautiful animation uh, that was in the film that came out a couple of years ago, Pupil uh, in Chimneytown. Absolutely gorgeous. And then we have other, you know, other realms that we go into where you've got blues and, and pinks and purples. Talk to me about coming up with the different color designs as representation for essentially the stages of their relationship. Yeah, oh, I'm so glad that that resonated and, and that you picked up on it because that was really important. Oh, I'm sorry, my dog. That's <laughs> um, okay. Uh, it, it was really important to me that that was a big part of it. Um, you know, and color design is something that I was thinking as I was writing the script and, and um, you know, environment design, because again, kind of like everything come, for me tries to, I try to make it rooted in character. And so it's hard sometimes when you're picking colors because you don't want to overthink things and, mm -hmm. and you always want to have kind of a nice contrast within, within certain color palettes and, um, so, you know, the very first version of kind of my color deck was like, well, this is going to be all blue and this is going to be all orange. And then, you know, what you realize is that, you know, if you go lean too far in one direction or the other, it can feel kind of stilted or there isn't kind of enough natural color contrast. And right. So, um, you know, the, the kind of big picture rules that we came up with were that, um, you know, warm colors were going to be for Molly. And so everything that represents her is going to be, um, you know, reds and oranges and, um, you know, pinks and, and purples. And, and that's kind of going to be her world. And then when it comes to Max, he's going to have kind of cool colors where, uh, you know, everything's going to be blues and yellows and um, uh, greens and, and just kind of colder colors. So uh, and then within that, you know, you want to have you still want to have kind of contrast, but being able to kind of have those generalized things was really important. And you know, so much of the movie is, is about kind of how you have to travel in circles in order to move forward and, and this kind of circular nature of, of growth itself. And so there was, you know, talk of kind of how, you know, we they both kind of start in this orange and, and teal um, worlds, respectively, and they kind of go and, and go in different directions and uh, end up, you know, Max goes into a kind of more blue side of himself and Molly goes into a more kind of pink and purple side of her. And then they end up kind of finding their way back towards orange and, and teal, which are kind of these classic sci-fi color combination. So it was something that I talked about a lot. And then, you know, we also kind of felt it out a little bit as we were going in, in post-production where you, you realize that one of the nice things about visual effects is if you, you know, for the stuff that we didn't already shoot in camera, we could throw it together, have references, look at it. We worked with an amazing colorist named Christian Rush, who was really incredible and, and worked with us over the period of five months where we could send him visual effects shots. He would give us a grade back. We'd realize that we needed to change something or bring out, mm -hmm. you know, the colors in, in a certain part of the VFX shot. And then we could tweak that and send it back to him. And, you know, there, there's stuff like that when you're working on a small scale with, with only a couple of people that, you, you know, you weirdly kind of cut out a lot of the, the back and forth that you have when you have these giant kind of systems of organization. And so it was just really, really nice to do that. And, you know, I think a lot in terms of color and shape and, and you know, going into shooting anything, you know, that's part of the conversation with me and Zach, uh, the, the DP, and then also Violet, our production designer. And when I brought her on, she, you know, really took that idea and ran with it and, and, and developed those color palettes and, and talked about, you know, what are our primary colors, what are our secondary colors, how do we, do we have accent colors, you know, how can we make sure that stuff doesn't feel too flat if, mm -hmm. you know, we are restricting that palette. Um, so it was, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of, of the way it looks, and, and it really was a team effort between a lot of different people. Well, and, you know, what I love about the colors that you use for Max is <clears throat> because you go with those cooler colors and, you know, you've got blues and silvers and, and things, it constantly, subconsciously reminds us that Max is from the planet Oceanus. It yeah. is a water planet. 
Um, yeah. So, yeah, you would expect that. Whereas Molly, being totally human, um, she's going to have a, a wider swath, shall we say, of yeah. a color range than we would expect to see with Max. And you follow this through, not only with the color, with the production design, but also with your costuming. Some very unique costuming, especially with Molly, comes into play. Um, we see some, some, quite a few different looks for her, uh, and yeah. uh, particularly with her hair. So, uh, talk to me. What were you looking for to create her look? Max, other than when we first meet him and he has long hair, which we expect, as time goes on, he's clean-cut, good-looking. He's His clothes are pretty much all cut the same. Molly is the one where we see the, the human mess, the human closet, shall we say. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I mean, um, we had an amazing costume designer named Hannah Kittel Matsuo, and uh, I mean, she was a one-woman team, and she was incredible. And, I mean, I think in general, it's so much more fun to dress female characters, and, and both with their hairstyles and with their clothes, because women have so many more options. Um, and so we really took advantage of that. And we also had an amazing uh, hair and makeup department lead named Sarah Plata. And, um, you know, we talked about, you know, I think with with everything, you want to show small changes between the characters, but you don't want them to be so crazy and so big that they be, they come off distracting. And so, you know, similarly, we wanted to kind of show this circular growth by starting her with these space buns uh, and then bringing, you know, bringing back the braided look towards the end mm-hmm. and, you know, figuring out, you know, is, similarly in your real life, you change hairstyles and sometimes you end up, you know, taking back something on that you had when you were younger. And, um, you know, I think for, for me, it was like, well, what are, you know, how do we use hair? How do we use costume to express character and show uh, the, the, the stages that these people are at in their lives? Because really, I mean, at its core, this is a movie that's two people talking to each other for 93 minutes. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have to use every tool in your belt in order to make it interesting and, and show that time has passed and, and show that at life has moved on even in, in, as many ways as you can. Um, and so, you know, it, whether or not she has her hair up or her hair down, it was like, well, how do we make her look younger? How do we make her look a little bit old, more mature? Um, you know, and, and similarly, you know, Max has a little bit less to do, but I also think that kind of fits with his character because yeah. he doesn't necessarily care as much about, you know, uh, about changing his look. And he goes through kind of a radical transformation when he when he sells out and becomes a corporate shill and then is able to kind of slip back into the way he used to dress that is, you know, he still has the buzz cut. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think whenever you're making a movie, you're, you're kind of creating meaning. And with whether it's with color or with costume, you know, you want to... Um, you want to have all of your changes be meaningful because that's kind of what an audience is tracking. But you also want to make sure that it isn't, um, you know, too crazy, too over the top, that it feels subtle and that, uh, you know, it's often felt more than, you know, too, too explicit. Um, and so I really relied on Sarah and Hannah to kind of help me through those things. And, but, you know, we did a lot of research too. And, and one of the things that I brought to both Sarah and Hannah was, a deck kind of going through classic science fiction and, and you look at Star Wars, you look at Princess Leia. Princess Leia was a big influence of just the way that she dresses where it's kind of simple and utilitarian. You know, there's kind of these classic science fiction patterns that uh, you find where, you know, it, it's like Patagonia or North Face, those, those kinds of, of, of like quilted uh, fleece, mm-hmm. or not fleece, but, um, you know, it's like winter wear. Sure, uh, the because puffer, people in the space puffer, are, yeah. are always cold. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, you know, using that kind of as a jumping off point, but also making it, you know, we also looked, talked about the costume design in her, uh, the Spike Jones movie, where, you know, everything is just a little bit different. It's, it's you know, in that movie, they have the high-waisted uh, pants. And, you know, I think that was like genius because it's just different enough to show you that it's the future. And, you know, but it also kind of, you know, leans into the past and you have this little bit of retro futurism there because I think when you look at stuff from the 
60s, 70s, and 80s, you go, oh, it, it, you know, it's not crazy different, but it just looks a little bit different. And then, and I, in every aspect of this movie, I really wanted it to, to just be like one or two degrees of different um, so that at the end of the day, it's not the thing you're focusing on, but it does kind of help you kind of lean into this uh, slightly heightened reality. Well, and something I noticed, it, you know, some of the costume touches even relate back to the early Flash Gordon serials back in the 30s and the yeah. 40s um, in terms of the fabrications and the fabric finishes. So I really love that. Um, one of the biggest elements of this film that just I went crazy over, the score, Alex Winkler's yeah. score. You went with jazz. It's very, <laughs> it's, I love it. I love it. I love it. And then at one point, we get a really cinematic, almost like a Max Steiner, Bernard Herman romantic piece that comes in, motif that comes in. The music is incredible. What led you and Alex to come up with, think of jazz? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I think a lot of people have been very surprised by how well it works. And for me, I was never, I was never in doubt of it, partially because I saw um, Cowboy Bebop, which is an, an, an old uh -huh. anime show yes. that is very well-known and iconic. And, like, you know, they, they mixed science fiction and jazz in a way that was really inspiring and just, like, with such a great combination. And then... When you watch when you watch those old romantic comedies like uh, When Harry Met Sally or Annie Hall or or the Before Trilogy, like a lot of them have jazz. And so for me, it was like, well, what are we what are we taking from each genre, and and what, like what is the purpose of it? And I think that that jazz has this kind of melancholy feeling, and um, you know, it, it it kind of for me it brings up these themes of existential ennui, and that's a part of the film. So. For me, you know, that was an obvious choice, and, and um, I brought on Alex, and, and we had so little money that I was like, I was like, maybe we can get Alex to do a couple of original songs, and then we can try to find some stock jazz, or, or mm -hmm. you know, you know, maybe some classical music, or, or you know, find something that we can license for free because we aren't going to be able to afford a full original right. score, and. Alex just like stepped up to the plate and knocked oh. it out of the park and offered to do the entire score start to finish. And, uh, you know, I really cannot take that much credit for it because we, we put some temp music in there, but he took everything we gave him and he just took it to the next level. Wow. He made a hundred percent original soundtrack. It's on Spotify. It's, it's incredible. And, uh, yeah, like, you know, that final song that you mentioned, um, that happens in the last scene, um, was something that was originally we had a Chopin song in there as temp music, and I really loved the Chopin song. And I said to Alex, I was like, you know, you're already doing so much for us. Like, if you want to not do this one last three minute song, like we have a, a cue that we could probably get the right cue. And he was like, let me just take a let me take a stab at it. And <laughs> he, the first draft he turned in was perfect. I like had oh. no notes. It was just incredible. Well, and I'm happy to hear that the soundtrack is available on Spotify. Yeah. Because I was going to ask really you and say to you, you need to put out a soundtrack. And you've already done it. So that's great. Yeah. But now I've saved the best for last here, Michael. Your two leads. Zosha Mamet, Aristotle Authority as Molly and Max. What chemistry... What fun they both are. How difficult was it to cast this film with those two? I mean, they made my life much easy, easier because they are so naturally talented. And, I mean, it's such a hard thing to guess whether or not two people are going to have chemistry uh, based off of, you know, their previous work. And, I mean, they both have a long history of great, you know, work that you can point to. I, I've been familiar with Zasha's work from Girls and The Flight Attendant, and, um, you know, she, she's just so naturally funny, and she knows how to deliver lines very quickly, but still not lose the meaning of them, and 
Uh, you know, she's just like whip smart. She, she has a kind of inherent personality that she brings to things, but she, she has such a range and she has so much experience. Um, so I was, I've been a fan of hers for a very long time. Uh, and, uh, Aristotle, I hadn't known about until my casting director kind of put, uh, him on my radar and I looked him up and he was on Saturday Night Live and he has a, a long history as a stand-up comedian. Um, and so, you know, I love it. I, I really love working with people who can bring their ideas, their energy, their, uh, excitement to a project. And, and we had five days where we could rehearse the movie together and, uh, we could read through sections of it and then I would go home and rewrite it. And then I'd come back and bring it to them and we'd go through it again. And, you know, it was a really nice way to kind of get to know one another, get to know each other's working styles. Um, and kind of develop that relationship in in a very low stakes environment. And so I think that kind of friendship really, really helped us get off to a great start. And, you know, they're both just lovely, nice people. And, and when you're making a movie, our crew is 12 people, you know, like it was, wow. it was such a small film. <laughs> and a lot of the time, you know, it's when you're making a movie that's small, it's not glamorous. You don't have, uh, you know, an extensive craft services table. And, you know, we do everything we can to make make sure that they're comfortable, but it just inherently is going to be less comfy than a lot of the bigger stuff that they've worked on. Mm-hmm. And so part of it was also making sure when I talk to other people that, you know, they have really good reputations for being nice, hardworking, egoless people. And at, that really was true. And, and at every step of the way, they were just like, so endlessly generous with with their patience and their their time and and um you know i really think they made the movie so much better um by kind of you know so much of i think having that chemistry is being able to kind of loosen up the script and and make it feel natural and and there's so many very silly things in this movie whether it's aristotle saying oh my science or you know zasha uh riding a giant tentacle where like you need to have people that can can sell those lines and make it make it feel real despite the fact that it's very very absurd um and they just i mean it was it was a dream working with them and and um i loved it i loved every second of it you know on the days of shooting did you allow for improvisation at that point or had you pretty much kind of worked everything out and were sticking to the script I definitely encourage improvisation because sometimes, you know, that stuff just comes in the moment. And then, you know, if, if you improvise something in a rehearsal, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work the same way on set. And so I'd say the movie is 90 to 95% scripted, but like mm. some of my favorite lines in there are improvised. Um, and, you know, they both came to the table with stuff that we hadn't done in rehearsals and tried stuff out. And then the other one would pick up on it and react to it and, you know, sometimes the line that ends up making it wasn't even the first line, it was the reaction to it. And um, so, you know, I, I try to everything, you know, because, especially when you're doing something with so much visual effects, like I plan out everything, everything yeah. is 3D storyboarded. You know, there's a, a remarkable amount of prep that goes into it. But I, I do that also that I don't have to think about that on the day and uh, that all of those kind of technical like questions are answered so that when we show up, we can have time to play and mess around and, and find things and make each other laugh and um, still have a good time making the movie. So now that Molly and Max in the future is in the here and now in theaters, it opened on Friday. Um, what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker that you can take forward into your future projects now that you have this first feature directorial under your belt? Oh man, I've learned so much over the ten years it took to to get here. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to simplify it down to to one thing, but I think like you know I came out of school and I had a short film that did well and got me representation, and I spent you know seven or eight years kind of wandering wandering the desert of Hollywood trying to get my films made, and I think for a very long time I kind of had this attitude that was both subconscious and conscious of. I really need someone to save me and and help me do this because I can't do it myself. I can't just get my friends together and go make this movie. And I, you know, I eventually kind of ran out of options and kind of uh, that had no other choice. So I, uh, you know, it had to happen the way it is. So I don't have any regrets, but uh, I do think that there was like a very distinct shift when I, I realized that I need, I could, I could, I could go do it with my friends and keep it small 
um, and go make the movie that I wanted to make and not necessarily wait around for other people um, to give me permission to do it. And so that's something I'm trying to, you know, take forward. And, and when I, uh, for my next couple of projects, you know, just have that kind of determination from the beginning mm-hmm. of this movie is going to get made one way or another, whether it's the big version or the small version, um, you know, you, you have to be the person pushing it forward at all times and, and making sure that, um, you know, that you're the one bringing, bringing it to life because nobody else is going to care about your movie as much as you do. Well, I'm so glad you cared about this one and you made this. I cannot wait to see what your creative little mind brings us next. Be- uh, uh, thank you. I am just so in love with Molly and Max in the future. Um, I just think it, it's, it is just wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Michael, thank you so, so much for being on the show today. This has been so lovely getting to speak with you. And I hope we get to do it again in the future. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This was such a nice conversation. And, and, you know, thank you for helping us get the word out about the film. It really means a lot. So now get back to work and make another movie for me. (laughs) Will do. Will do. Thank you, Michael. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Michael Lutlitwack. Molly and Max in the Future in theaters now. It is a gem, folks. It really is a gem. And the creativity factor just puts it over the top with, you know, using, uh, you know, miniature models, uh, 2D, in-camera practical. It's fantastic. Now, as I said at the top of the show, we have a scheduled day off next Monday for President's Day so Pam can have her three-day weekend. So, But we will be back, you know, if the rain gods permit me. Uh, We will be back on Monday the 26th. Now, in the interim, I have to tell you, been waiting and waiting and waiting. Finally, this released on February 6th. John Lindstrom, you know him best from uh, from General Hospital, uh, as first Ryan and Kevin Chamberlain. Ryan, of course, is dead now, so he just has to play one role. But, He is now an author. Um, John has written a book, Hollywood Hustle. It is a thriller. And it is superb. When John was last on the show and we were talking about a film that he was in, he briefly mentioned it, that the book was coming out. Yes, it is now out. It came out on February 6th. Get it, get it, read it. It's wonderful. And I'm trying to find time to get John back on the show to talk at length about his book. So, you got movies to see, you got a book to read. And of course, for a family film, I've said it before, I'll say it again Netflix, Orion in the Dark. I am so enchanted by that film. And yes, I did have it on while I've been sucking up and mopping up water over the past week because I needed something to make me smile and that animated film does it so that is all the time we have today until next week i'm debbie elias this is behind the lens